You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the fabulous Feinstein's 54 Below. Before we get started this evening, just a polite reminder. Please take this moment to silence your cell phones. Also, there is no flash photography, please. Thank you, and enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, Andrew R. Butler and Mark Sonablick. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Feinstein's 54 Below podcast. I'm Adrian Carnani, marketing associate. And I'm Grace Benini, digital marketing coordinator and producer of the Feinstein's 54 Below podcast. On our last episode, we were joined by two of the incredible artists participating in our New Writers at 54 series, Rona Siddiqui, who kicked off the series on January 9th, and Billy Reese, who is bringing his show to Broadway's living room on January 23rd. And today, we have two more of these fabulous rising stars sitting down with us. Our first guest is a composer, lyricist, and scriptwriter whose credits include Midnight at the Never Get, which garnered a slew of nominations last season, including nods from the Drama Desk, Lucille Lortel, and OCC Awards. You might also know him from Independence, Ship Show, Stompcat and Lawndale, and Dragons Love Tacos with TheaterWorks USA. He has been nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award and is a recipient of both the Harold Adamson Lyric Award and a Jonathan Larson Grant. Our first guest today is Mark Sonnenblatt. And we actually have another Larson Grant recipient with us today. A writer, composer, and performer, he is known for creating and starring in the Lortel Award winner for Outstanding Musical, Rags Parkland Sings the Songs of the Future. His composition credits also include four musicals co-written with playwright Andrew Farmer. As an actor, he has performed in productions from theaters such as Ars Nova, Soho Rep, and Theater for a New Audience. He also writes and performs with the long-standing musical comedy group, Political Subversities. We are so happy to have Andrew R. Butler with us today. I'm Andrew R. Butler. And I'm Mark Sonnenblick. And you are listening to the Feinstein's 54 Below podcast. Mark Sonnenblick and Andrew R. Butler, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks um, for having us. Yeah. So I think we're going to definitely want to hear from both of you, but we'll start with Mark on this one. Could you just get us started by telling us a bit about your journey as a writer and kind of how you discovered this was a path you wanted to go on and how right now it is coming together in a show at Feinstein's 54 Below? Oh my gosh, my whole life. All of it, yeah. Uh, well, I, uh, I guess I'd always um, loved music and playing piano uh, and was lucky that my parents for some reason decided to get me piano lessons uh and uh so played piano for a long time and 
started uh, playing like in a jazz, like school jazz rock band. Um, we play at like sporting events and things like that in uh, middle school. Um, and played in that all through high school. But I remember showing up kind of the first day and getting a book of like 300 songs uh, that just had, like I'd played kind of classical music, but here here were all of these songs, some of which I knew, a lot of which I didn't, but just had like chords on them and, and you know, it was like a fake book. Um, and that was sort of my first experience playing, getting to know songs and, and, and songwriting by actually playing them. And uh, loved being in that band and kind of by the end of high school started writing my own music and... Um, senior year of high school wrote like a, a short musical with my English teacher and uh, it was called Apples. So <laughs> really a fantastic title. It was about Greek gods and the misadventures that they had. It was very fun. A lot of uh, kind of like got a lot of friends um, in the senior class to be a part of it. And that was the first time that I'd put, um, I had the chance to sort of write musical theater. I moved to Denver kind of the fall after after college uh, to, to be in a band with a friend of mine and was out there for about a year and a half, two years, um, just kind of writing music for this band and uh, realized that I really missed theater and w- would come back to New York every few months and try to cram in like four shows in a weekend and uh, realizing I, I really missed kind of being surrounded by like the you know especially musical theater writers there there's a reason everybody comes to New York it's because other people who are doing what you're doing are also there and it can feel crazy to be not in that community of other writers where at least even if you know your show's not getting produced no one wants to listen to your music you can be around other people where that's the case with them as well and uh you I mean Andrew's very much one of them. I, I feel like we, I, I think we met like maybe three months after I'd moved back to the city. Oh, wow. um, uh, I ended up music directing a workshop that he was in and just immediately was like, oh my gosh, like this is, this is the thing, you know, you're, you're meeting this collaborators, you're meeting the people who inspire you, you're listening to the writers and the actors and the people who are involved at the like highest level of what they do, you feel like you're a part of a group that uh, kind of has each other's backs, but also is making stuff that makes you want to go home and sit alone in your room and make cool things too, even if, again, nobody will finance your show or put it up or you never get to see it fully realized. You get to write an amazing song because you got, you know, the other people around you are also working just as hard and being just as scrappy. Um, and that's kind of what brought me back to the city, and it was absolutely the case when when I got back here and uh, just started writing, and, and I think I tried to lean into that community a little bit, and uh, that was where, um, you know, first opportunities sort of came from. So, Andrew, do you want to tell us a bit, um, I guess, about, for you, how you kind of came into writing and decided that that was the path for you? Yeah, you know, I, I feel like um, I have a, a younger sister, um, <laughs> And um, I think from a young age, feeling compelled to compete for attention is probably a large driver (laughs) of like, how can I get everybody's attention back? Perhaps both as a performer and a writer. Um, 
So that's like pretty foundational. Uh, although I started playing guitar because my sister Lizzie started playing guitar. I had played piano similarly. I was in piano lessons. I did not go on to become uh, an amazing pianist like Mark <laughs> or even like a competent pianist. You picked other instruments that you're amazing at. Well, thank you. And I have Lizzie to thank for that. Lizzie was like, I don't want to play piano. I want to play guitar and start taking guitar lessons. And then I like <laughs> piggybacked on guitar lessons and got good at guitar until I, I guess, ruined that for Lizzie. And then I went on to become a musician and songwriter. <laughs> and then, you know, I was making things in school as a kid. It's nice everything's all mixed up, you know, getting to do uh, theater programs from a fairly young age. I grew up in the boondocks in the Florida panhandle, like way out in the sticks. And it was hard to go see things. Like I couldn't go see musicals. I didn't really grow up seeing musicals. Musicals weren't really a part of my life. Uh, it wasn't a thing in any of the social worlds that I was in. I didn't have, like, cast albums that I listened to. Um, it wasn't really until I moved to New York that I started to be exposed to musicals, and my idea of them was largely shaped by this, like, early scarcity of resources in, like, rural America, where the idea of, like, musicals were a thing that, like, a rich school could do. And ultimately, it was able to study theater in college, um and just had really amazing professors there and was started getting tapped into this incredible community of other people who at that time we were all in like a drama program studying to become actors but also learning about theater and migrating in different directions therein. Um, yeah, and then just, you know, kicked into it and working as an actor, trying to do music stuff, being an actor musician kind of opened some like funny doors into really interesting projects. And I just kept writing, I think my like senior like thesis project it was a, a musical tragedy with puppets um framed inside of a comedy that was uh basically some musicians telling a story which is kind of maybe all of my work in a nutshell mark your show midnight at the never get was first presented at the musical theater factories uh 415 and then moved to don't tell mama as a developmental concert then continued as a limited run production, then went to Nymph and did a six-week engagement in Provincetown, um, and then went to the York Theatre Company. So it kind of went through all these different iterations. So for you as a writer, when you see um, a work go through that many different productions and that many stagings, how does that shift your process and how does it shift the work itself? Uh, well, I mean, first of all, it's a really lucky thing to Absolutely. get to see something so many times. Although like every time we've done it, it's been a a pretty, you know, the musical theater factory four by fifteen. That's fifteen minutes of, mm-hmm. you know, the what we ended up doing there. I mean, what musical theater factory um, is so incredible at is just kind of being like, do you have, and especially that program, what do you have? Just kind of put it out there and see what it is. And I don't know that anything that we did in <laughs> in those fifteen minutes actually was ultimately. A part of the show, and that that's kind of been the case as we as we've gone through. Is it's a show that um, uh, Max Friedman uh, uh, directed, and Sam Bolin is is uh, kind of the, the singer, and it, the show was his idea. And unlike any other show I'd worked on before, it was really uh, you know writing for a specific person and also workshopping it in the room with this director and this actor. And for the first three incarnations, I was also in the show. And so it was basically Sam and I, very easy to edit, change, that joke's not working, let's fix it, let's figure out how to make this tighter. 
But it, it's been a huge process of discovery at every stage. And I think that's, I mean, that, you know, that's why theater has previews when you're lucky enough to have them. I'm very much someone who, once you see something on its feet, you revise it. And the, the organizations that support new musical theater and give you the chance to try things out when they're still raw and unfinished, they'll let you then go, let's shape this into uh, something that you know can, can be what it ultimately needs to be. It takes a lot of people to build a show that isn't just, here's the, bright, here's the writing, here it exists, put it on. Um, and I, Midnight is really the one show I've had where I've had the opportunity to tighten and revise over the course of four years. Uh, in many different incarnations, and I learned so much, not only about the show, but also, yeah, this is what it's like to have the opportunity to really build something. Right, so Andrew, you are also a performer, so how does that um, influence the way you write or the kind of voice that you write for? Do you often find that you're writing for, you know, your personal range and the performer comes later, or does the music just come first? How do you go about? Such a good question. I feel like Mark just said something that was really uh, rang a bell for me, which is the power of being able to uh, write by performing. Um, and I talk about this a lot with one of my writing partners, Andrew Farmer, who's an amazing storyteller and playwright. Um, and we often write work that we both perform. Um, and the performance can be one of the most valuable writing tools and that being the writer in the body of the performer gives you a lot of information about what's working, what's not working, pacing, vibe, style, connection with the audience, the thing that you're looking for and gives you the ability to edit really quickly, sometimes too quickly, um, since you feel a lot of license to adjust the thing that you have prepared in the moment of performing it. Um, so that's one big way that I feel like performing my work for that part of my work that I'm a performer in, the process of being on my feet in front of, in front of an audience doing it is uh, actually a part of the writing process itself. And then if I'm just, you know, writing a tune, I, some, it kind of just depends on like where it starts. You know, every once in a while there's a song that kind of like starts as a, a random piece of music and that might come very much in m my voice and I might be writing it uh, kind of on my own body and then I will want to translate that and work with a performer to make sure that it is sitting authentically in their body. Um, but then sometimes, you know, you're writing a song with a real clear idea of like, oh, it's this character, this is, um, you know, the type of person they are, this is the type of voice that I would love singing this song. And you wind up in that funny writer scenario where you are just never going to be able to, you know, make your bedroom demo of this song in a way that at all communicates what the tune is, which is fun to do. And then concerts like this are really thrilling because it gives you the chance to reach out to that performer uh, and say, oh, hey, I have the song and you would be so incredible for it. I've never even gotten to hear this song with my ideal, you know, type of voice um, or style or energy or whatever that person is bringing. Uh, it's a chance to, like, see a thing you've made come to life in a way that you yourself even as a very capable performer, are unable to do. That's really fascinating to hear just the different ways you can approach a song and see them kind of come together and see it finally come to life. Mark, could you tell us a bit about the way you kind of approach the songwriting process? Like, do you tend to start melody first, or do you have, you know, a lyric that comes into your head, or do you have a sacred space where you sit down and say, you know, this is where I'm writing, just kind of your general process? I would say typically for, like, 
if it's a musical, there's there's a scene or there's a story, I know what the song needs to do. Start by going, what is the idea? And really, like, what are a couple pages of ideas of kind of what the moment could be? And then figuring out what, okay, great, this is an idea that seems like it's going to be able to sustain the three or four things the song needs to accomplish. And I know how it can, like, evolve over the course of the song. And once I have that idea, then I'll start, like... Uh, doing kind of music and lyric stuff a little bit together, finding kind of the initial chorus or the initial uh, verse section, something that's really clear. Then I tend to go and write all the music to make sure that like the overall musical arc is going to work. And then I'll go and, and put, because I've already outlined what sort of the beats of the song need to be, go and put the, the lyric um, to the music on top of it. But then if I'm just like, well, you know, I'm writing just for me or I'm writing uh, for my band or something like that, it tends to be I'm like, you know, just alone. Like, what do I, what am I feeling? <laughs> like, what, what do I, what do I just like want to say or put together or what seems fun? Um, and that's also what's fun about this concert is there's a lot of songs in it that uh, are just not, exactly from shows or just kind of a chance to share things that I wouldn't have a chance to share otherwise, some of which no one has ever sung before, some of which nobody has sung since my concert five years ago. Uh, it, 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 I don't know. I'm, that's part of the reason I'm excited and like was like, okay, I need to do this is because there's just material I want to share and performers I want to sing the material that, uh, you know, is not what you would see if you were just going to see the shows that m- may or may not be produced at any given time. Andrew, your show, Rags Parkland Sings the Songs of the Future, is kind of an uncommon combination that it takes a lot of folk-inspired music, but it's science fiction subjects set in the future. So what kind of drew you to pairing those together? It was sort of a conflation of things that I was interested in at the time that I was digging through. I grew up with folk music, and so that is a thing that has always sort of lived in my world, and I've always loved science fiction. Um, And I was... uh, this was in like 2009, 2010, and I was just in a heavy song writing phase and was also in a phase of checking out a bunch of science fiction shorts from the library. Thank you, Brooklyn Public Library. And uh, uh, they, they just sort of converged, these kind of two universes. Um, and the more that I was playing around in each of them, they just co-reinforced in a really nice way. Science fiction is this... Uh, genre that's full of possibility, but also is full of, uh, you know, describing uh, different foundational elements, like the world can be completely and totally different. Uh, And that kind of requires a lot of learning when you're taking in science fiction and folk music is extremely uh, oriented around ideas and words and communicating and stories. So the two things kind of fit together nicely. Um, And then like, to be super specific, there's a Philip K. Dick short story. And like the story is about this guy and when he writes songs, they come true. And the stories are really about like politics and like trade organizations in the far future and spaceships and stuff. The thing that I latched onto was this folk singer who just lived in the future. And I was like, oh, this is uh, the exciting combination of these two things that I'm pursuing right now. And so I started uh, taking some of those songs and thinking about them in that way. Um, and also I was just trying to figure out a, a show that I could make. A musical that I could do is a musical that is just me and a guitar and a microphone. And that's all that it needs. 
And if those are my restrictions, what's the biggest story that I can tell? Uh, and uh, a science fiction story is maybe a great answer to that question. Actually, with your show, like, where I think a, a lot of the pleasure of it is the world building that happens over the course of the show and the mm -hmm. way the information comes in. Part of, I feel like, the suspense and the pleasure of it is suddenly realizing the rules of this world that you think you're familiar with to a degree, but actually it's, it's a completely different uh, different place. And that's something that science fiction uh, and storytelling in general like are both amazing at, that the show did an incredible job with. Um, I feel like my favorite science fiction writing is like that. It's not like you're reading a description of what things might be like. It's like you're reading a story that's probably... Uh, feels like another type of writing a great American novel or a mystery or whatever but it's set inside of this science fiction context so the writer is sort of doing two things at once where they're telling you this one story but then they're also telling you the story of what the world might be like and the way those two things interact create this great third text. Uh, that's really interesting to hear where kind of the seed of the idea for Rags Parkland came from and then obviously it took kind of a long time for that show to develop and grow into what it ultimately became. Um, could you talk a little bit just about how the idea kind of grew and formed into what it eventually became? Totally. Um, I It was a very song-first process where I was writing tunes or melodies and then just sort of like free associating and building out some big images that were exciting to me. Um, so some of the early songs in particular felt like kind of these collections of images or discrete ideas that had to do with my feelings about the future and what was terrifying about that or exciting about that or potentially could exist then and there. And then I sort of took this collection of songs that I had written all in this folk style and I at first kind of reverse engineered uh, the world. I took them all as pieces of information about who this singer was and the world that the singer lived in and extrapolated from there, like what are the rules of this world, what's going on in this universe. And the original show was a solo show, it was just me with a guitar, and it didn't have a lot of uh, like internal narrative event. But that original show was much more of a, like a pastiche of these different elements from Rags Parkland's life, and he talked about was early in his life and what's going on now, what was happening then, and we talked about all these other things, a, a very recent nuclear disaster uh, that's like a part of that universe, but is, it doesn't come up in the show, that, the Ars Nova show at all. Part of the process was focusing in and saying like, these are the things that are speaking to me now. Uh, the questions and the sort of reverberations of these, of particular ideas felt more and more pressing given the world that we're living in right now. These are the conversations that I want to be having. These are uh, the historical patterns that I want to highlight how they're happening now by telling a story about them recurring again in the future, which helped me to sort of pare away some of the events uh, in the original solo show that uh, I loved but that didn't feel pertinent to telling this particular story. Uh, and the other was, as I continued to work on it, I was eventually given uh, opportunities to do slightly bigger things than a just me show. And as I built more of that community that we were talking about, I hit a place where I was like, you know what? I know people and I have these relationships and I feel comfortable asking, inviting somebody into that collaboration and being like, do you want to work on these songs with me? Like, do you want to be a part of this world? And people who had seen my early work on the shows and were excited about it uh, were excited to step into that room. 
Um, but having more opportunity also helped to shape what wound up in the show. You know, it's like if I can have a band, then we're going to wind up focusing <laughs> on the part of Rex Parkland's life when he had a band, <laughs> um, which kind of helped to decide that portion of it. And then also having an institution like Ars Nova, who uh, at some point encouraged me to take off my, um, like, what can I functionally pull off all by myself hat and broaden it out to, well, if you could just do whatever you wanted, um, what would be the biggest, most theatrical version of the show that you would love to tell? And that was huge. But it's that thing, too, of like all those other elements, right? In a concert, the song is just the song and the performer, and the performer adds a tremendous amount, as does the band, I guess. But it is that thing where a lot of times I feel like you're designing, you're designing songs to be lit a certain way or with a certain mm-hmm. set element or all these things that there's a really rich thing that theater gives you uh, that you know you don't get if you're playing a set at Rockwood mm-hmm. that you try to write for and so it's feels exposed to sometimes to you know just be like and here's the song um, it's always really interesting to just hear kind of how that idea can grow and shift and change and how all these different people can come together to bring a show into what it is but something you said that I think really resonates with a lot of new work these days is that it asks really contemporary questions And as a result, I think we see that the landscape of musical theater overall is shifting because there are so many new writers and people all over the city and all over the country and all over the world creating work that really challenges the forms that we have right now. Um, And, you know, we've seen that at every scale. So for you, existing within that, both as possibly as people who are changing the landscape, but as people who are existing within a landscape that is changing around you, how do you think that that evolution impacts you as a writer? And do you think that it's allowed you to kind of broaden your creative horizons? I don't know that I was ever chasing the old form. Like I didn't know it and I didn't study it. Um, so I think it's extremely exciting for me that these doors have been opened, that there's interest in especially more commercial spaces for work that has a different shape uh, to be seen and to be funded and to invite audiences in, into it. Definitely my exposure to musicals uh, was like traditional musicals uh, and, you know, being in whatever, Seussical and Bye Bye Birdie and and that kind of thing growing up. And I think what is incredibly exciting is just, uh, especially coming to New York, you're just reminded that like, yeah, musical theater, there are songs, they're on stage in some way. What does the stage look like? What are the, like, the vocabulary is really, really broad. And again, part of the reason I, I think so exciting to be in this community is, is, People are doing very, very different things, uh, all of which are inspiring in different ways, and just being like, oh, man, that's something that's amazing that I could never do, or that's something that's amazing, and I want to take like that little bit of it and try to mess with something that I think I could do something really cool with that. There's, you know, you're part of, you at least try to be part of a conversation. It's just an incredibly exciting time to feel like, yeah, the, the doors are open, the route is not clear, maybe it's never been clear, but... Certainly the formula of what a show is and what it can do feels really uh, wide open right now. So I just have one more question for both of you. Could you just tell us a little bit about what audiences can expect at your Fine Science 54 Below show and some of the exciting guests you have joining you and any other fun things you can tell us about now? I'm incredibly excited. Uh, I'm, I'm doing songs from three different shows and a lot of other songs that aren't from any shows. There's 
some incredible performers. Lily Cooper, who I think is absolutely amazing. And then performers that I've gotten to know more recently, like uh, Will Rowland and uh, Jason Sweet Tooth Williams. Uh, some people like Tiffany Mann. My, my friends Daniel and Patrick Lazor, who are amazing writers. Julia Madison, uh, Sydney Meyer. Really excited for this lineup. And mostly because like it's a chance to have so many people sing things without, you know, having to put on a show that it has a cast of 20 people or whatever it is. The songs are all over the map. The arrangements are going to be amazing. And uh, I think there's going to be a lot of surprises. It's going to be upbeat uh, and funny. And you'll get a chance to see, I think, especially, you know, people who came to see Midnight at the Never Get, you're going to get some of that. But, like, that is a, a slice of the way that I write. And, and I'm just incredibly excited uh, and, and grateful to Max and Madeline for, uh, you know, helping me make this happen uh and my boyfriend Isaac who is producing and he's <laughs> he's done an amazing job um but you have a good team January 22nd 9 30 come out and check it out Andrew could you tell us a bit about what audiences can expect at your show it's gonna be a lot of songs um I am I'm sharing a bunch of songs from a, a whole bunch of shows uh that I have been working on um the Rex Parkland cast is gonna be there we're gonna do some Rex Parkland numbers <laughs> Uh, we recorded an album uh, ah. at the end of the year. What? Yeah, we recorded a cast album. Oh my gosh. Uh, but so we had just recently gotten all the music together, so this was like the perfect timing to get them back together and do some tunes. So I'm really excited. Stacy Sargent is going to be rocking it in the whole band. Um, and then I've got, you know, other shows that feature bands. <laughs> like I have this kind of bluegrass swamp musical uh, that's set in Florida. I'm from Florida. And we're doing a bunch of tunes from that. So I've got like... There will be banjo, there will be upright bass, there will be me on a guitar. And then it's some, you know, singers who I love. Uh, Britton Ashford, who I've just, like, have been a fan forever, is singing a tune from a show of mine that's about a uh, small town in coastal Alabama. Um, more southern stories. Uh, she's amazing. Uh, Nicole Weiss is going to sing some tunes from that, like, Floridian show. Nicole is, like, an incredible force. And Kuhu Verma, who is in Octet, is also singing a tune. Um, she's singing a tune from the Alabama show. All of my shows are associated with the southern state. Rex Parkland, it's Virginia, which <laughs> you may miss in the show, but it is set in Richmond. And a couple of like fun oddball tunes. I want to do like a cut Rags Parkland song. It wasn't really cut. It was actually never for the show. It's just like part of the universe. Uh, and I have a bunny murder mystery musical that I'm working on with this company <laughs> called On the Rocks. Uh, they're amazing, and it is a completely ridiculous song. Mimi Scardula is singing it, who, if you don't know Mimi, I promise you that you will. <laughs> so I think it's going to be like a really rollicking good time with some serious lady ballads in there. Just yeah. like, it's just Southern folk rock vibe ballads. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Andrew R. Butler will make his Feinstein's 54 Below solo debut on Thursday, January 16th at 9.30 p.m., Mark Sonnenblick will take the 54 stage on January 22nd at 9.30 p.m. Tickets for both shows are available at 54below.com. Be sure to follow Andrew on Twitter at Andrew R. Butler and on Instagram at Andrew R. Butler. You can keep up with Mark's new work at marksonnenblick.com. You can follow us everywhere at at 54below. The Broadway Podcast Network is on Instagram at at Broadway Podcast Network and on Twitter at at Network.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.